Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Sam Fankhauser to the podcast. Sam is director of the Grantham Research Institute in Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. He's been at the Institute since its inception a decade ago, where he initially joined as a principal research fellow. Sam also holds positions as deputy director of the Centre for Climate Change Economics and Policy and non-executive director at the CDC Group, the UK's development finance institution. Sam's research interests include the economics of adaptation to climate change, climate finance and the functioning of carbon markets and climate change policy in the UK. Thank you very much, Sam, for taking the time to speak to me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So can you maybe tell me a little bit about your work today and really the work and focus of the Grantham Research Institute? Well, yeah, the Grantham Research Institute is, is a, a research centre at the London School of Economics. We are about 40, 50 people plus the same number again in visitors, PhD students, associates. So we're quite a, a sizable group being based at the LSC. We do what uh, LSC is known for, that's economic and social science research. In our case, we apply those tools to climate change and the environment. Um, we keep, uh, perhaps unusually for a, for a research center at the university, we keep a keen eye on, on the policy debate. So one thing we want to do is to uh, engage with decision makers and, and, and help decision makers be make better, more informed decisions. So that's very much uh, our objective. We don't just do research for, uh, for the ivory tower, as it were. Absolutely. Now, uh, when we talked about some of the questions we were going to cover on this, I, uh, at the outset, was going to ask you a little bit about how bad things are. <laughs> now, I know that uh, it's a criticism that's been made, uh, or a comment at least, about some aspect of the envir of environmental movement or people concerned about the environment is is framing things in a negative way or, or, or you know, that, that people get... Uh, worn out by hearing uh, about the challenges and the difficulties that lie ahead. Now, you, you, you mentioned that you, 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 you liked to, to talk about it in a, a different way, that you talked about talking about the, the low-carbon opportunities. Can you talk a little bit about that, why that's important to you, how you frame this whole topic? Well, I, I think it's important to, uh, to sort of understand uh, what we're doing and the Germany we're embarking on. I, I, it is true that... Uh, uh, we're gently running out of time if we want to meet the, the Paris objective of uh, keeping global warming to well below 2 degrees centigrade. But it's also important to see that uh, we're not just talking a, a story of uh, limits and, and not being allowed to do things. We're also talking about the story of new opportunities. If you look at what uh, what's happening in in the clean technology world, electric cars, solar panels, offshore wind. Um, there's a huge amount of investment, excitement, growth, innovation going into those sectors. And we're starting to, to sort of be able to tell the story more credibly that the growth 
of this century, the growth of the 21st century is low carbon growth and that we can actually do have prosperity and a cleaner environment at the same time. I think it's important to frame the debate in those terms. There are certain things we're no longer allowed to do or able to do, but it isn't a sort of a hair shirt story. It is very much a prosperity story. Yes. Yes. So how tangible are the low carbon opportunities, Sam? It's uh, they're, they're growing. I mean, if you look at the clean tech sector, um, you know, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of money going it. The, the car industry is really putting a lot of money into batteries and electric cars. That's sort of a trend that I find hard to imagine how that would be stopped. Uh, we look at renewable energy, solar panels, how quickly they have come down in price. Uh, in the UK, uh, we had a, an auction recently on offshore wind power, and the price was sort of well below uh, anything that anybody had expected, including sort of experts who are in that sector, to the point where those technologies are now competitive with the sort of technologies that emit and the technologies that we are used to. So there's a huge amount of innovation going into those sectors. At the moment, it's mostly transport, I would say, surface transport and and uh, electricity generation. But we will have to go and look broader. We will look at innovation in, in aviation, for example. We need that. We need uh, innovation in products and processes in industry, new materials. And that is happening. But at the moment, the forefront is electricity and, and, and cars, I would say. Yes, absolutely. Now, I'm interested to talk to you today about uh, an area I know you've done a lot of research, the area of carbon tax, carbon taxes. Um, and I just w- wondering whether you could maybe kind of summarize one or two of the, the most important arguments for a carbon tax. Well, let, let me broaden that and give you first uh, the most important arguments for putting a price on carbon. There's various ways in which a price can be put on carbon, a tax is obviously one of them, so very straightforward uh, sort of administrative way of putting a price on carbon, but you can also have trading schemes, you can trade permits, uh, emission reduction permits. So there are two ways in which you can price carbon, they're both sort of important and we, we probably come back to that. What is the argument then for putting a price on carbon? Well, there's a uh, there's a philosophical argument and then there's a practical argument. The philosophical argument is that we want to make the polluters pay. The people who who cause the, the environmental harm, as it were, the emitters of fossil fuels, should be um, asked to pay for, the, for the, the damages they cause. And that can be done through carbon pricing. That's sort of a well-established principle of environmental policies, polluters pay. Um, in economic jargon, in environmental economics, um, and here's a, a, a nasty piece of, of, of jargon, um, we talk about the externality and the need to to bring uh, that externality into the market setup, to internalize it. An externality is something that causes a cost that is not reflected in the price of that activity. So if I uh, if I uh, buy a kilowatt hour of electricity that comes from a coal-fired power station, I pay for the coal, I pay for the workers, I pay for the transmission, but I do not pay for the environmental 
damage that this activity has caused. And we we have to uh, to make markets function efficiently. We have to make sure that all products cover the the full cost of of their production. So that's the philosophy. In practical terms, I like carbon pricing because it works. There's a lot of empirical evidence that shows that people respond to price signals. If something becomes more expensive, um, they do less of it, or they find ways of uh, making it cheaper to avoid ways of avoiding the emissions. There's a lot of empirical evidence that that price signal actually has an impact on people's behavior. So for practical reasons alone, let alone the philosophy, I think it's a good idea to put the price on carbon. And where are we now in the state of development, would you say, of carbon pricing? I know there's been carbon taxes, carbon emission schemes, some more successful than others. Um, it seems quite a complex area. Well, it is a complex area uh, in the sense that uh, there's different, you know, there are different ways in which you can put the price on carbon. You can either have taxation or you can have a trading scheme. You can have a sort of a hybrid combination of the two. And there's sort of various technical ways in which you can set these things up. So it is complex because there's a lot of technicality in the design of those schemes. But there's an increasing number of emissions. It's about 15% of global emissions at the moment that are covered by a carbon price. So that is a, you know, that's a significant number. In my opinion, it should be all emissions, but that's a that's a very good start. So carbon pricing is extending. It's extending not just in uh, industrialized countries, but it's also an uh, increasing number of, of uh, emerging markets that look at carbon pricing. China is probably the most um, prominent example. China has is home to one of the three world's three biggest carbon markets. Uh, the, the other two are in California and in Europe. So China, as an emerging market, is is very serious about putting a price on carbon. But a lot of other countries are as well. Let me single out one: Sweden, which has been pricing carbon through a tax since 1990. And Sweden is a prosperous country, so you can't say that it has been overly damaging uh, to the Swedish economy. Right. And what kind of prices are emerging? And what kind of price is required, would you say, to hit the targets for the Paris Agreement? That's a very big question. I'm sure there are many assumptions necessary to to, to, to talk about that. But broadly speaking... Well, the prices we observe at the moment, you can summarise as being too low. Um, the typical carbon prices in the schemes I mentioned in the European Union trading scheme... Uh, in California or some of the carbon taxes we observe, say, in British Columbia or in the UK, they're sort of in single-digit um, euros or pounds per tonne of carbon, which does provide a, a certain signal and it does change behaviour and we can empirically show that. But if you ask what is the carbon price that we need to meet the, the Paris commitment, um, you're sort of more talking of something that is in the 42 say 40 to 80 uh, euros per tonne in 2020 and then raising, rising to something like 50 to 100 uh, euros per tonne by 2030. Those are not my numbers, incidentally. Those are numbers that come from a panel of very eminent 
economists that have uh, produced a report earlier this year on carbon pricing. It uh, was uh, the report was led by by uh, Nick Stern and Joe Stiglitz, so two very prominent economists who who have looked at that very carefully. So how are we going to get there, Sam? <laughs> Well, that's that's the uh, that's the interesting question, and it's a question of political economy as much as it's a question of economics. The political economy of uh, uh, putting a price uh, on carbon is 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 complicated because uh, surprisingly complicated, I should say, be, because uh, sort of if you want to simplify it, people don't like taxes. People are suspicious about taxes and and putting a price of on carbon uh, ultimately uh, does resemble a tax in in one way or another even if it's a trading scheme uh, and that i say surprising because i i started off saying that uh, we're talking here about an environmental correction we're talking about making the polluters pay and you could think that consumers would like the ideas of making polluters pay, but they're too suspicious of governments. They think that it isn't actually about making the polluter pay, it's about making themselves pay, it's about the government raising revenue. So you have to design your carbon taxes uh, quite carefully to, to account for those suspicions. Uh, that your electorate will have about those schemes. Uh, a lot of that is very careful communication as to why you're doing it, how you're doing it, who is paying how much, how the revenues are being recycled. And if you do do that, you uh, you, you have a much higher chance of getting those schemes uh, through Parliament. Yes, yes. Now, what, one thing that uh, many commentators talk about is the re regressive, regressive nature potentially of of uh, carbon taxes uh, presumably it's a technical question w what do we know about uh, dealing with that well the regressive nature of a tax is absolutely true that means that uh, poor people as a, as a share of their income pay a, a higher share of the tax than, than rich people do uh, that's sort of empirically uh, well proven to, to be the case, although it tends to be softened if you look beyond just energy consumption and, and so also look at the energy that's embedded in all the other things that we consume. So the energy that went into making uh, your iPhone or something like that. And if you do that, uh, carbon pricing becomes slightly less regressive because rich people consume things that are more uh, energy and carbon intensive to make. Nevertheless, it is an issue and it's something that one has to look at. Again, there, there are measures in which you can soften the regressiveness of a carbon tax. You, you can have uh, targeted compensation in, in the UK, for example. Um, there's, there's things like winter fuel allowance that make sure that people have enough income to, to uh, keep warm in winter. The other thing that one can do, which is very important, is energy efficiency measures targeted at low-income households. Because ultimately what matters isn't the price of electricity or the price of energy, it's the size of the energy bill. And the energy bill consists of the price uh, per kilowatt hour times the number of kilowatt hours you consume. 
And if you can bring down the number of kilowatt hours you consume through energy efficiency, through loft insulation, solid wall insulation, more efficient boilers, and so on, then the, the energy bill, the thing that really matters, goes up by a lot less because consumption goes down, price may go up, uh, but the bill stays constant. That's what we've observed in the UK, actually, where bills have uh, uh, roughly remained constant uh, despite uh, sort of an increasing number of green taxes that we have put on those bills. Right. And uh, do you uh, expect that to hold when you talk about figures which are multiples, you're talking about 50, 60, 70 dollars? There's a lot more energy efficiency to be had. We are not very good at energy efficiency, so uh, there's a lot of energy efficiency potential that we haven't realized, but obviously it is finite. At some point we sort of reached physical limits, as it were, of energy efficiency and and bills may well go up. And that's when, when um, issues of targeted compensation, income support, uh, perhaps even sort of structural ways like block tariffs where the first set of uh, uh, kilowatt hours that you consume are cheaper than the, the sort of the final luxury sets of kilowatt hours. Uh, so you, you, you can find ways through through the structure or through, through direct compensation which you can uh, keep bills down. Yes, I guess a lot depends on the political will. Now, you mentioned the EU, you mentioned China, you mentioned California. Um, would you say that the, the, the uh, pace of um, marketization, I suppose, or carbon pricing is, is increasing? Uh, and and how, how much is, is, is it? I mean, the pace is certainly increasing in terms of the number of jurisdictions that are considering it, that are looking at it. Um, there's, a, there's a clear interest in looking at these things. Ironically, um, some of those jurisdictions, including in the US, are, are looking at it also with an eye of the government revenue that, that can be raised, which uh, obviously going back to where we started, the cynicism of uh, of the electorate who, who do see these things as a, as a revenue-raising uh, device sort of get, gets fulfilled to some extent in that. But... Uh, you know, in the, in the US, uh, there, there's sort of in pushes towards a carbon tax, including from, from industry. Industry looks at this uh, uh, from the point of view of saying climate change policy is a fact. We, we, uh, we will have it. We do need to solve the problem. Um, so we are more interested in rational policies than in efficient policies. And uh, from that point of view, we prefer a carbon tax over some of the other regulations that we might have. Yes, yes. And we talk about a market. The, how is the price in the market determined? Presumably the government has a big role to play here. Well, we, we're now talking about an emissions trading scheme as opposed to a carbon tax. In a carbon tax, the government just sets the tax rate. Yes. In an emissions trading scheme, um, the setup is that a certain number of permits sort of allowances to emit a ton of CO2 over a year are being issued. Uh, and uh, if you, as a, as, a, as a company, as an emitter, emit a certain amount of carbon, you have to buy the equivalent amount of permits and submit those permits to your regulators. Um, the government comes in uh, because the government or its uh, sort of dedicated uh, regulatory entity uh, issues those permits. 
the permits can either be given away for free, which uh, often happens as a way of inducing industry to participate, or they can be auctioned, and in which case the, the government uh, uh, organizes those those auction schemes. Yes, yes. Um, now, um, can you talk about, you've got the, you, you mentioned there's the uh, emissions trading and you've got the tax um, and, and there's a range of different uh, approaches in, in different markets and so forth. Is that okay? Is, is, is there, you know, that there'll be a patchwork of different kinds of systems and will, is there an expectation that prices should, uh, what's the word? Um, Converge. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um. I'm I'm very relaxed about the fact that different jurisdictions have different sort of pricing schemes. The fact that uh, uh, British Columbia has a carbon tax, and uh, you know, a couple of hundred miles south in 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 California, they have an emissions trading scheme. That doesn't matter very much. What matters more is the relative uh, prices that that uh, are being raised. Uh, across those jurisdictions, because that, in a sense, uh, creates a, a level or unlevel playing fields. If one tax rate is high and the other is low, obviously it, it moves emissions to the to the low taxation scheme. And, and in the long run, that, that is probably undesirable. So there will have to be an element of convergence in tax rates or to reformulate that tax rates have to reflect what countries' common but differentiated responsibilities are under the Paris Agreement. Common but differentiated responsibilities is a key word in the international negotiations, which which reflects that not uh, every country is in the same economic situation and not every country has contributed the same amount to the problem. So you can have different carbon pricing uh, levels to reflect those differences. But in an ideal world, you would have a uniform carbon price across firms and fuels because that allows the market to figure out where emissions are cut most cheaply. Yes. Any signs that that's happening? Uh, not very many, to be honest. Uh, there's what current carbon pricing schemes have in common is that they have a, a very low carbon price, so they're uniform in, in, yes, yes. in jointly being wrong. <laughs> um, but uh, there isn't sort of a sign of convergence. What might lead to convergence is a growing interest amongst various jurisdictions to link up their trading schemes. We have, for example, seen some Canadian provinces linking up with the Californian trading scheme. And when you link up in that way, obviously you you unify your carbon prices. You will have one carbon price across the two linked up jurisdictions. Uh, jurisdictions don't link up because they like the unified carbon price. They link up because they see the efficiency gains uh, of linking up. There's a, there's a lot of economic gains to be had on both sides, actually, by linking up your trading schemes. Right, right. Now, can you talk a little bit about the use of shadow pricing in corporates and just where do corporates fit in with respect to carbon pricing? Corporates are very important because um, a lot of what needs to be done uh, ultimately has to be affected by by firms, by, by the private sector. Um, so it's not just governments and households. Firms are very, very important. To some extent, firms are being uh, exposed to a carbon price through regulatory 
means. So if you're uh, an emitter in Europe, you're you're exposed to uh, the EU emissions trading scheme, so you get a carbon price through your uh, friendly EU regulator. But a lot of um, a lot of firms have sort of Im imposed their own internal carbon pricing scheme, basically because they sort of want to understand what uh, what their carbon footprint is, uh, but also to understand what their carbon risks are if they invest in in certain high carbon assets. Um, they uh, they don't factor in the carbon price in, in their decision making. They run the risk that they create a stranded asset that further down the line, uh, the regulatory agency or, or governments that are keen on, on, on meeting their Paris commitments will stop them from using those assets in the intended way. So using a shadow price for carbon within firms is one way of um, dealing, managing, understanding uh, those carbon risks. Yes, and as I understand it, some of the, the shadow prices are significantly higher than the kind of prices that we're seeing emerging in, in these other markets. Uh, that That's correct. Um, going back to the recommendations of the Commission by Nick Stern and, and Joseph Stiglitz, um, the sort of 40 to 80 euros per ton of CO2 by 2020. Those are probably roughly the sort of carbon prices that one that one observes in industry. And the reason why they probably have a higher carbon price is that they don't sort of grapple with the political economy of of convincing voters uh, to to accept those those levels of carbon prices as as politicians do. Uh, if if you're uh, the CEO of a company, you can rationally sort of say what is the likely carbon regulation that uh, that an agreement like the Paris Agreement entails and then use that carbon price as the most accurate reflection of what those regulatory uh, implications might be. Yes, yes. So how, how should we view the, the recent calls by major corporates including ExxonMobil, BP for carbon tax in the United States? Well, there's sort of there's the cynical view and the less cynical view <laughs> on that. The cynical view uh, would, would go slightly as follows: There's a recognition that carbon taxes are very difficult to incorporate politically, much more difficult than trading schemes because of the word tax that appears in the title. And therefore, if you want to block the momentum towards carbon pricing, if you advocate the carbon tax, you sort of make sure you, you slow the thing down and make it as complicated as possible. So that view is certainly out there. There's a less cynical view, which I, I hope uh, will be true, and it was certainly true in Europe, it was certainly true in the UK, where industry recognized that climate change was a, a serious problem, a problem that had to be solved, a problem that would entail regulation and government intervention. And industry then said, if I have to be regulated on my carbon emissions, I'd like to be regulated in a rational, efficient, forward-looking way. And the most rational, efficient and forward-looking way for industry is having a, a carbon tax or a, an emissions trading scheme. So that's what industry then advocated. Yes, I suppose on the, at the same time you could say, well, uh, it's all in the detail. A carbon tax is fine, but if it's you know comes to a price of ten dollars or something like that, that's fine. But if you're actually talking about maybe eighty to a hundred dollars, maybe people wouldn't be so 
uh, open to it. <laughs> I mean, that's that absolutely sense. true. It isn't just the absolute price level, which obviously is one uh, issue of, of debate, but also the level of exemptions that you that you put into your uh, taxation scheme. I, I mentioned Sweden earlier as a country that has a very high uh, carbon tax level and has had for 20 plus years and um, but there are also significant exemptions in the in the Swedish carbon tax plan so it isn't just uh, the sort of the the headline number of the tax rate it is also that the loopholes that you put into your schemes yes now uh, you, you mentioned the, the the word tax which is obviously problematic for some notwithstanding the the uh, economic arguments what about the the emission schemes and um what would you say are the lessons there? The various trading schemes, some have uh, been uh, more successful than others. Um, and um, is this the way forward? It is only a way forward. I've always been fascinated by emissions trading scheme as a sort of a ingenious way of, of uh, achieving uh, an environmental objective. And, uh, you know, there are environmental markets that existed before there was carbon trading. They're in the US markets on sulfur and NOx that have been very, effect, very effective in, in, in solving those particular environmental problems. The lessons we learned from the carbon markets, and again, the, the big ones where one can learn lessons from, is the EU emissions trading scheme, the Californian trading scheme, and now emerging uh, a set of uh, Chinese pilots, but there's trading schemes elsewhere as well. A couple of things that we learn from that is uh, a the prices do tend to come in low and that's a combination of regulators um, not understanding what the sort of emissions profile and the emission reduction costs are amongst the firms they're regulating so there's a, an element of asymmetric information there so too many permits get issued just because the regulator doesn't know the, the true situation um, Prices are also low because there isn't a sort of a complete trust that the system would be there for the long term and uh, the supply of permits would be tightened so the prices would go up. There's uh, sort of an element of short-termism in those markets. Um, so most uh, regulated firms respond by doing short-term operational adjustments. They have a harder time doing the long-term investment decisions uh, that we will need. So carbon markets are better at the short-term guidance than the long-term guidance. I think that's sort of important as, as we go along. But we also, you know, there's empirical evidence that emissions do come down. The systems work. Emissions uh, stay within the cap. So the environmental objective is being met. There's also evidence that it uh, trading or emissions uh, uh, pricing leads to innovation, so to long-term efficiency gains. And there's this little evidence at the moment for the schemes we have that it has been overly detrimental to the regulated firms in terms of their uh, productivity. Right, right. Now, um, I, I guess you've got um, the potential, you've got the developed countries and the, the, well, the global south, the emerging markets. I'm just wondering, um, are there some questions there in terms of how um, they, they're they looking at, at, at carbon tax and carbon markets? Well, there's sort of the broader question in, in um, developing countries as to what their role should be in, in, in the global fight against climate change. We, as you 
uh, those who remember back to the sort of the 20, 30 year history of negotiations um, under the Kyoto Protocol, the, the 1997 uh, sort of precursor to Paris, if you will, there was a clear distinction between industrialized countries who had to reduce their emissions and developing countries who didn't. Um, that divide is, is now under Paris a lot softer and it's recognized that all countries uh, have to make a contribution. By implication, all countries will look at the right policy instruments to make that contribution. And carbon pricing uh, is, is an effective way of of doing that in, in, in countries that have a high emission space, countries like, like China, for example, um, where, where carbon pricing is, is looked at. Can you say in some sense that some countries will lose out from carbon pricing relatively? And, and is there an argument to be made for uh, how, how to deal with something like that? I don't think so. I mean, uh, every, you know, every sort of deep structural change like the one we're going through where we decarbonize the, the world economy, uh, every such structural change creates winners and losers. And obviously there will be losers. Uh, there will be in particular sectors uh, and they will be uh, spread across countries, but there will also be winners and those winners are also uh, spread across countries. Uh, and, and a lot of emerging markets realize that. You look at countries like China, South Korea, I think Rwanda is another example. They don't have climate change laws. The title of their laws to deal with climate change are called green growth laws. They see climate change as environmental policy, but they also see it as industrial policy. Korea is probably the best example. Their green growth law is very explicitly aimed at making Korea the global leader in the low carbon economy. Korea wants its firms to have a comparative advantage in that economy uh, that is coming, uh, that is low carbon and climate resilient. That's very interesting. And talk about relative uh, about, uh, sectors and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about carbon leakage, explain what it is, the impact on competitiveness and and how to deal with that? Yeah, there's sort of two twin terms here that people use. One is carbon leakage and the other is uh, competitiveness. Uh, what, what we are talking about here is the impact of a unilateral uh, carbon price or unilateral uh, carbon policy. If I'm the only country that uh, puts a price on carbon, uh, then there's a, is a possibility that my industry, say my steel industry or my cement industry or my pulp and paper industry will migrate abroad to jurisdictions that do not face those regulatory burdens. Um, and then competitiveness uh, reflects the loss of jobs and revenue that goes with that migration and leakage reflects the relocation of emissions uh, that goes with, uh, with, with that move. Now, empirically, we've had carbon regulation, particularly in Europe, for, for 10, 12 years, so we can empirically see where the leakage has happened. And the empirical evidence suggests that there hasn't been much of it. Uh, that doesn't mean there wouldn't be uh, leakage and competitiveness effects. If we had higher carbon prices, we had the sort of carbon prices that we actually do need. That is quite possible. Um, but there's one counter argument to that, which is that 
um, other countries are increasingly also uh, putting carbon prices on their industries and it's the relative carbon price that matters the carbon price in my jurisdiction versus the jurisdiction uh, industry might migrate to and to the extent that countries are implementing their Paris agreements through carbon pricing as for example China is doing that sort of unilateral distortion is starting to fall away Right, and and to, to the extent that co- countries are doing this individually, um, as you say, as part of the the, the Paris Agreement and so forth, um, where does the question of uh, governance um, or international agreements or uh, mechanisms to bring together different schemes and things like that? Well, there's obviously we have the Paris Agreement, and the Paris Agreement is about uh, a sort of a globally agreed level of ambition and uh, as an element of consensus as to which country contributes how much to that global consensus. So politically through Paris we develop a sense as to who should and who can do how much to the problem. Um, I'm talking more about the, the carbon prices or the carbon markets themselves. So that there's then the question as to whether you want the individual carbon markets uh, to be linked up and whether there's merit in in a global carbon markets. I do not think we're we're anywhere near of having a global carbon price or a sort of a globally regulated carbon market. I'm not even sure that would be the most sort of desirable thing to have. It's it's much more likely to see a system emerging where individual countries have their regional carbon trading schemes as Europe has, as California has, and those jurisdictions then start talking to each other and start looking at the the merits of linking up. And we have done some work on what we call carbon dating, as in which carbon market do you want to ask for a date and, and sort of, you know, link up with. And there's two things are, are quite clear. The first is that it's beneficial to link up carbon markets. Um, so individual jurisdictions will want to do that because it helps them meet their, uh, their environmental targets at lower costs. The second thing that is also clear is that uh, your choice of partner matters. Uh, in, in particular, you, you want to link up with a partner that is relatively big. So you have a big pool of emission reductions opportunities that you associate yourself with. And you want a, car, a partner that is not economically correlated with you so that when when my economy is booming and my emissions prices are high, um, my partner economy is flatlining and has not so high emissions uh, permit prices so that we can trade trade some of the overheating away and then the other way around if I'm flatlining the my partner is booming and and then is taking up some of my slack permits so there is a sort of a science as to whom you want to yes uh, yes uh, sort of cooperate with but cooperation is clearly a good thing Yes. And does the scale, the size of the market, because financial markets tend to like scale, and what role do financial investors have to play? 
the size of the market absolutely matters because you want liquidity in in a system. You want the ability to trade uh, your permits very freely, very easily. You want to know that there is somebody who's going to sell you one if you need one and is going to buy yours if you want to uh, uh, get rid of of them. So liquidity matters, and that has to do with the size of the market. Um, size of the market also plays a role because it increases the pool of opportunities to find emission reductions. The bigger the market, uh, you know, the more factories, the more emission reduction opportunities you 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 are able to to unearth. So that clearly matters. The role of of investors. Uh, clearly, the emission reductions that that have to happen, they they will have to be financed. So we need a financial system that is comfortable financing offshore wind farms or or electric car plants and low carbon opportunities like that. And we need a financial sector who understands and trusts the carbon pricing schemes they operate in, because those carbon pricing schemes set the regulatory context within which they invest. Yes, yes. Now, you mentioned about 15% of global emissions are covered by carbon prices, and we're talking about quite low figures at the moment. Can you see a path forward to an effective price on carbon emissions, and, and, and what kind of time frame would you think this needs to be? I wouldn't speculate on the time frame, but it's a quite clear direction of travel, and the direction of travel is that more and more jurisdictions look at carbon pricing as an option, and even those uh, jurisdictions that already have pricing schemes may look at uh, at expanding them, bringing new sector into it, or, or finding parallel uh, schemes to deal with the sectors that are not currently covered. In the EU, for example, um, the emissions trading scheme covers uh, about 40 or so percent of emissions now, and that leaves close to 60 percent of emissions that are not covered. And it might be that the EU will want a carbon tax for those 60% of emissions, so broadening the scope. Countries like the US that we talked about might uh, probably at the state level at this point in time look at taxation schemes. Um, so I, I see the, the number of 15% of emissions covered uh, going up. And as it goes up, there's sort of probably an element of momentum. We We know from the empirical literature that there is such a thing as policy diffusion, um, that that uh, regulators uh, learn from each other and, and uh, sort of copy each other almost. We did some study on, on some studies on uh, climate change legislation. We have a database of 1400 pieces of climate change legislation. And we looked at what are the determining factors of passing a climate law. And one of them is the number of laws that your your trade partners and your neighbors, uh, right. your, your yes. cultural sort of uh, yes. countries with whom you have a cultural affinity. Um, if they have more carbon laws, you're more likely to have one. Right. You mentioned there are different pricing approaches. You know, there's the tax uh, or emissions trading. What broadly are the differences between these from a policy perspective? Well, there's differences in, in the way they sort of work economically and there's differences in the political economy uh, in the way you, you, you set them up and, uh, and pass them. Uh, in, in terms of the economics, uh, to simplify matters, uh, if, if you set an emissions trading scheme 
you have certainty about your environmental outcome. You know exactly how many permits you issue, so that's clear. But you're uncertain about the economic burden that you create because the price level is unclear, will be determined by the market and the price level will fluctuate. So if you have a trading scheme, you have certainty about emissions, uncertainty about the price. If you have a tax uh, scheme, it's exactly the other way around. You know what the tax level is because that's what you said. You have certainty about the price, but you're unclear how many emission reductions you will get um, for that tax, right? So you have uncertainty about the environmental outcome. Now, what should you choose? Certainty over the tax rate <laughs> or certainly over the outcome? Uh, there's a lot of sophisticated literature that tries to explain that. Ultimately, for me, it's more important that you set the right price uh, and 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 uh, whether you do it through tax or permits is secondary and setting the right price is then the second the political economy uh, difference between taxation and trading and it tends to be the case that trading systems are easier to set up politically because the word tax doesn't appear uh, in the title and also you're creating an asset Emission permits are, are, are an asset, they, they're worth something, and you can use uh, those assets to uh, to create coalitions of firms and people who are interested in, in the trading scheme. So that's why a lot of schemes start off by giving permits away for free. You give the asset away for free, that gives you buy-in. So in terms of political economy, a trading scheme is probably easier than a taxation scheme. But again, the, the main criteria for me is whatever works politically in your jurisdiction that is what you should do right now what about the obstacles politics important you mentioned the word tax it's got tax in it are there any other significant obstacles to carbon pricing well the the, the obstacles have to do with uh, with vested interests so there's obviously uh, there's a, a set of high carbon industries that that will uh, be the main uh, sort of losers from that scheme will have to pay the highest tax bill, and so there's an element of of, uh, of resistance from them, which one can overcome again through compensation schemes, allocation of permits, and so on. When it comes to taxation, there is uh, there is sort of voters and 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 and, uh, and consumers do not like taxation. They're very suspicious. Uh, as to whether it will do what uh, what it's intended to do, reduce emissions, to what extent it's just a way of raising revenue, uh, to what extent it is unfair on, on low-income households. All those things are concerns to, to voters when they see carbon taxation schemes. You can overcome them by being very careful in the way you communicate what your tax will do. If you're very careful, upfront and transparent as to what the tax rate is, who pays how much, how much of the revenue gets recycled and in what way and what the environmental benefits are that you achieve, then, then people sort of come around and, and, and start accepting carbon taxes. Great. And what are the lessons? You mentioned the Swedish scheme uh, a, f- a few times. Are, are there a few lessons that, can, that we can draw from, from the, the, their experience and the success they've had? The Swedish scheme is one of the schemes I would look at. The other one I would look at is, is British Columbia, which have a very successful in Canada, British Columbia and Canada, which have, has a very successful uh, and innovative carbon tax. Again, the lessons uh, there are 
mostly on communications and, and to transparency in which the schemes are set up and explain and then a very careful policy on, on how tax revenues are being recycled uh, uh, so that people understand what uh, happens with the money and, and derive comfort that it isn't just a revenue raising scheme, that it is actually an environmental scheme. Right. Are you optimistic then, Sam? Um, I'm, I'm optimistic about the sort of the direction of travel on, on uh, the political will. I think we will see more uh, carbon policies and better carbon policies enacted. I'm very optimistic about technological progress in areas like energy, uh, transport and so on. Uh, so there's that momentum that leads us to low carbon prosperity and low carbon growth is very much there. The question, will we do it quick enough to meet the well below two degrees Paris target? Well, I, we're slightly running out of time there. It's still doable, very much doable, but we might need a little bit of help from the climate system. What I mean by that is that we have to hope that the climate system is slightly less sensitive to uh, to carbon emissions than, than some of the estimates we have. Yes, yes. And what's next for the Grantham Research Institute, Sam? Oh, uh, what's next for us, uh, inward looking, we will be 10 years old next year. In terms of what we want to do, we want to continue to engage uh, with the policy community on climate change, the two processes that we are particularly interested in. One is the implementation of the Paris Agreement. How can we meaningfully um, increase ambition? What are the government's governance requirements? One needs for that, so we want to be engaged with that. We also want to be engaged in the UK debate, which is a fascinating debate. The UK is, uh, is one of the leaders on climate change and climate change policy, um, but we are entering a new phase with tighter carbon targets, but obviously we're also entering a new phase with, with Brexit. So we want to engage uh, with the UK, but also with the wider community on climate policy. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, Sam. And thank you so much for taking the time to explain the intricacies uh, of the carbon pricing and carbon markets. It's a great interview, and I uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.